Welcome to Never Before. I'm your host, Janet Mock. I have been a longtime admirer of my guest today, Amaya Scott. Amaya plays Cotton on the Fox musical drama Star. But long before she embarked on TV stardom, Amaya built a name for herself online and in the ballroom community. With her impeccable hair and makeup skills, seriously, she slays. Amaya branded herself as a unicorn with the invisible horn and attracted over a million followers on Instagram alone. One of those followers was director and producer Lee Daniels, who cast Amaya as Queen Latifah's trans daughter on his latest TV hit. Today, on Never Before, I sit with Amaya to discuss her journey from the ballrooms of the South to Hollywood, and how she was able to become a star without the help of mainstream media. We also discuss the passing of her friend, China Gibson, who was shot and killed in February. China and Amaya grew up and transitioned together in New Orleans as young trans girls of color. She was only 31. But first, Amaya and I love on each other. Hashtag girls like us. Amaya. Hello, Janet. Hello. How are you? I am so good. I am beaming. I can't believe that I have you. (laughs) Seeing your rise to prominence has been so awe-inspiring for me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be having a conversation with you. I've seen you do such great things. How were you able to build such a huge following without ever having any kind of interaction with mainstream media. I'm baffled by that myself. Like, I sit back and I look and think how things happened. And it started with uh, MySpace. I know you remember MySpace, girl. It girl, was, yes. It was a long, long time ago. And I mean, I've always loved to take pictures and share pictures. And I just think with the attention that I started um, to get, um, at first it was like, okay, this is pretty cool. And then I was like, wow, maybe... I might be onto something, you know. It, um, my platform and social media, like, it's just helped me so much. It's almost mind blowing to think that all of this, uh, like, in a way, came from a selfie. Um, I was thinking that since you're, you know, I come from a super large family. I'm one of five kids. Okay. And I thought that, you know, as an only child, like my husband's an only child, like you are. Um, how do you think coming out and transitioning? I guess kind of alongside your parents. How was that for you? I think that my family was. Uh, supportive, but they were as supportive as they could be with the unknown. Mm. Though I'm an only child, my mother has 10 brothers and sisters. So I have tons of cousins and tons of family. And I think that with me deciding to transition, it was just something that they were unfamiliar with. I can't even think of someone in my family who is out. And I say out because, you know, we really don't know what people do behind closed doors. But I think that I was the first person to step out in that way in my family. So it was just a difference. They didn't really know how to accept me. So it wasn't that they weren't accepting, but I just felt like they didn't know how, if that makes sense. Um, My mom was always in my corner. My father took it kind of hard. But as far as my family, um, besides my mother and father, I mean, like they're how they feel. Don't get me wrong. I love my family to death, but how they feel and their opinions really don't dictate anything. Mm. Um, My dad was the biggest mountain, I guess, that I had to overcome. And we got through it. My father, too, was was a piece of work. Oh, my goodness. What he understood in the world and how he learned the world was that he had a boy child in the world and he was raising this boy child to be a strong, 
black man. Yeah. Um, and obviously I had different plans. And so, you know, a lot of our battles with me growing up was around the sense of him policing my gender, not really having the language to know that, that it was gender policing, but it was a lot of difficulty for me. What ages for you were you most struggling with and battling your father? You know, when we suppress something, we tend to be to be aggressive and to be upset because it's something that we're holding in. So I think that my disconnect probably came around like 10. I think 10 is when I started to realize certain things. I didn't even really know about transitioning at that point, but you know when you don't feel comfortable. So I had a slight uh, resentment and I started to play in things more feminine or not even play. I started to explore and um, to enhance uh, my feminine like on uh, my feminine side, like, you know, clothes became uh, like it just kind of happened naturally for me. And I think that that's what my father and I, we actually have great conversations about it now. But it's almost like like I wasn't trying to be a girl. I was just trying to be myself. It got really bad around like uh, like 15. 15 is when I was aware of transitioning and uh, the possibilities and things like that. And that's when he and I had it the hardest. We kind of have similar timelines. <laughs> I remember at um, 12 years old, I met my best friend, Wendy, and she was the person that sent me to homeroom with over-tweezed eyebrows and silver eyeshadow, and I thought I was everything. <laughs> um, but I remember that being my first time feeling as if I was presenting in a way that made me feel most comfortable with myself. But probably around 14, 15 were the years when I started meeting the girls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and I grew up in Hawaii and you were in New Orleans at the time, right? Yes. I'm sure that they have a vibrant trans women's community there as well that you must have been able to tap into at 15. They do. And I felt like I found uh, the hidden temple, if that makes sense. You really uh, like I wasn't aware of what transitioning was or what the possibilities um, were. So I honestly almost put my dream to the side, if that makes sense. It almost makes me sad to think about uh, that I didn't think that my current day life was possible. Like, you know, like I didn't think who I am and the woman um, that I blossomed into was possible until I snuck out to a gay club one night. I was 15 and I saw my first um, show. Um, like it was a drag show, but it was actually a trans performer. And I, like, I remember that night so vividly, I looked at my friend and I was like, like, yo, she... She's special, like, you know what I mean? She's different, like, it just opened up my mind because I had never seen a transsexual before. And at that point is when the light bulb went off, like, okay, well, step one is to have a conversation with her to find out whatever she did or whatever's going on. I mean, like, I was just so amazed and intrigued to see someone that I saw myself in, to see someone, uh, like, almost um, familiar because I only knew of being gay before that instance. Yeah, I had similar interaction too. Like my only, uh, the accessible language that I had to know to describe myself when I was that age was also gay. I didn't know that trans was a was a thing until I saw a trans woman performing at my school, and I was like, "Well, they were performing at the rec center." I remember seeing her. Her name is Stacy, and I was like, "Oh my god, who is this woman?" 
And I had the opposite reaction, whereas you went to her and you ran to her like, what's the tea? Like, give me everything. I need to know. Like, I'm ready to take notes. I like ran away. I was like, I can't do this. This is too scary for me. It felt good. But it was also like a scary thing to realize, like, I'm like her and I'm going to have to go through some kind of, you know, arduous process to figure out how to get to where she is. Um, like it's amazing how similar our stories are. Like I feel like, uh, like with all trans women, we we have different journeys, but at the same time, it's so many similarities because the path is always not like that different. Like you know, it's just base themes that happen in our lives. And I mean, like I think that's so dope. Like just from the few stories that you've told me already, like it's just made me. Uh, think and reflect back to some memories I have. I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you, girl. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Another similarity I see in your experience, you know, I I remember seeing so much of you when you do like the really, really, really fiery red hair Uh and the calling out to Ariel and mermaids. You know, that's something that's a huge, you know, symbolism for a lot of specifically younger trans girls, this kind of identification with the mermaid. For you, what, how did that um, semblance of this this image speak to you with Ariel in particular because her story I felt I really related to it so she thought or so her family thought that she had everything that she wanted or she should be satisfied and she wanted more she wanted something different and she was willing to do whatever she needed to do in a sense to make that happen and just with mermaids in general uh, like of course you know the bottom is kind of like an unknown so I like that and I love for how beautiful and magical they are. She was always my go-to. Like, I love Disney movies, period. I'm a huge Disney fan. I can just sit down and watch them, like, back to back to back. And uh, with my father, he was always very protective. Like, even when I came out, though he took it hard, he was more so worried with how people were going to treat me and how I was going to be treated. Being gay, I mean, I'm not going to say that he was happy about it, but it wasn't just unacceptable. He was cool, but I almost did it, like I came out the closet with platform heels on. Like, you know what I mean, girl? Like it was like one step and then to the other one. So that's when things got a little hectic. But I say that to say that that's also why I identify with Ariel because that's how her father was. He didn't want her to be hurt. He wanted her to be safe and to be uh, where it's comfortable. And then uh, like, and, and like kind of within his eyesight, so that's why I've always, I mean, well, a few of the reasons, there's many more, but I don't want to seem uh, like a, like obsessive, <laughs> but I really, really love The Little Mermaid. I don't think it. I don't think it's excessive. I think there's a passion there, and I think that I'm sure there's so many. There's millions of girls who who feel that, but I do think that the the fishtail piece of it is is so um, exacting to a trans yeah. girl's experience, specifically a younger trans girl that's still grappling with feeling comfortable in her body. For you, I believe that so much of your journey began in the ball scene. Yes. Could you explain your first interaction with the ball scene and what it means to be? in that quote-unquote subculture? Um, The ball scene, I believe, is actually where my big break happened. Uh, Like, of course, it's the underground ballroom culture where you go and you compete um, in different categories for different prizes, most of the time cash prizes. Though I grew up in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit, I was like 17, and we, like, evacuated. Mm. And As soon as I got to Atlanta, my cousin had, like, this huge house off of Cascade. He invited, like, the majority of my family, so it was tight. Uh, Like, tensions were high. I was 
kind of at that moment where I'm sure, but I'm not sure, but I'm figuring it out. But I call it like the in-between stage. Mm. And you know that the look of the in-between stage is somewhat awkward because you aren't there yet, but you kind of are like no longer male or exhibit male. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was just, trust me, my family had a lot to say. So long story short, within being in my cousin's house, I, um, I left. And I remember I went to AutoZone with one of my my other cousins who needed a car part and I happened to see this guy that I thought was gay so I walked up to him and I was like honey where's the club at (laughs) (laughs) and he told me about this club called 708 in Atlanta I think it's closed down now but I wind up going that night here it's so funny because everybody thought that I was a lesbian when I first initially came to the club scene (laughs) in Atlanta (laughs) <laughs> everybody thought that I was a lesbian. So once I told them that I wasn't a lesbian, then, of course, they were like, OK, so are you like a femme queen? And I was like, you know, no. I uh, Like at the time, I was a drag, and they were just blown away um, with how I looked. And um, I think it just started from there. At that point, they began, uh, like I walked categories. I believe my first category that I started to walk was realness, and then I transitioned into face. Can you actually explain the distinction between, you know, the categories of realness and femme queen and or femme queen face? Yes, yes. Um, With the competition and the people that compete, there are butch queen categories, which would be uh, like a male. And then there are femme queens categories, um, which would be a trans woman, uh, um, like a woman that's on hormone therapy. And then there are butch queen and drag categories for people who do drag. When I first initially walked into the scene, I started to walk butch queen and drag realness. But they kind of like they almost kind of rushed me like out of my butch queen and drag phase because they thought that I was a film queen at the time. But I honestly mm. just looked like that my entire life. But my butch queen and drag kind of run was very, very short. And then I transitioned into walking face. And I mean, like realness is basically a category where they judge you on how passable you are. Mm. So, you know, the girls will show their backs and hold their hands out, you know, and play with their hair if it's real and things like that. Um, and I did well in it, but I really started to excel um, like in face, like almost to the level to whereas I was undefeated and I was so young, it was almost unheard of for anyone to come in a scene like that and to so quickly, girl, shake it up. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like this new, you're this new kid coming in to a new city, number one, yes. being displaced because of Hurricane Katrina. Now you're in this new city of Atlanta and you're kind of quickly progressing through this culture that has its own sense of hierarchies in a sense to walk femme queen face. You know, I think a lot of people who are listening may not understand this, but to walk femme queen face and to dominate and to win is a huge accomplishment and achievement for you. Do you remember the first time you won a prize and what that felt like for you? I do, I do. And the ballroom scene, in a sense, saved my life. You know, I, um, me being younger and then being displaced, I was transitioning. My father and I didn't speak um, from the ages of like 16 to 20, 17 to 20. You know what I mean? So I was kind of almost out here alone. I fell in love and I met a guy and we were just, you know what I mean, kind of getting by. But I say that to say, that a $1,000 grand prize at 17 can change your life. I've won up to, I've won a lot. And so much of the you know ballroom experience is about presentation, stage presence, performance. How has that experience prepared you as you know, transitioning into being an actor? 
I think that it really prepared me. I think that it helped me a lot. It gave me, um, it helped me with my presence, of course. I think um, just seeing the characters and stuff in the scene, I mean, I see so many ballroom references in real life. I see so many ballroom references in television, whether it be from the movements or the dancing or the lingo. I mean, I really feel like that all stemmed and came from the ballroom scene just being kind of put out there because when you're on that stage it's just so many eyes and there's so many people watching and I think that it really helped me in that aspect um, being able to show off my talents and exhibit who I really am. What's so fascinating to me about you, it, it's the same thing that really drew me in to also Amber Rose and Black China, is that you three to me in my mind were like our version of silent movie stars. <laughs> I don't know if this makes sense to you, but there's a sense of like us not really knowing who you were, but seeing your images so often and not really hearing your voices. And there's something about the power of you coming forward and using your voice and being visible and vocal in this way that I find really inspiring. I remember the headlines that came after you were... I guess kind of you had some disagreement with The Real Housewives of Atlanta, which, you know, is a show that so many people watch, millions and millions of people. Yeah. And seeing you take control of not being used in a way, because so many girls grow up thinking no one's going to want to see me. And so if someone pays attention to me, I should accept these crumbs. And you're like, no, 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 no. I deserve a whole meal. Yeah. (laughs) What was that experience for you like? I always start by saying that I don't have a problem with the franchise nor the people. I made some great relationships and I had a great time. But when the situation was brought to me, of course, you know that it's not like a casting call for housewives. So, of course, I was recruited. And when they came to me, they um, like I knew that I was just going into it to film to see how I fit or to see how it works. And it wasn't I just you know what's right for you and you know when people want to take advantage of you in a sense. I'm gonna be myself and I believe that I have a great personality, but I'm not going to cut up or act out of character or do things for a certain amount of attention. I'm really not gonna jump through hoops for anyone, especially when I could possibly be degrading myself or diminishing my brand or who I am. That's just not the way that I was raised. So it wasn't like all the time, but there were certain moments where there were certain things that I was asked and I felt almost as if I was like that token Mm. uh, transsexual that they were just trying to throw into the mix. Like, you know, and I just didn't feel comfortable with it. And it wasn't uh, like contrary to how they tried to make it believe, not them, but you know, like TMZ and the media and stuff like that. Like it wasn't um, me storming out or anything. I actually walked away gracefully. The reason why I went with it is because I felt like um, transgender and housewife aren't words that we usually see hand in hand. And I think we deserve to be seen in that way. We're not only here, but we're smart, we're wives, we're doctors. I mean, there's so many there's so many negative stigmas that come or that surround being trans. And I felt like that was an opportunity to change that or to help in changing that. But throughout it, I just felt like, I don't know, I just had to get in and get out, girl. Like, you know when it's right and you know when it's not. What I love with what you did there was that you said this, you know, 
millions of people watch this show and you just said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage in this anymore. This is not right for me. Right. Yeah. There's a great disappointment in that. Right. Like this opportunity is, quote unquote, gone. Mm-hmm. But then it also grabs you the attention of Lee Daniels. Right. Can you please demystify that story of how you two connected and the audition process for Fox's star? Yes, yes. So so long story short, my last time filming, I called my best friend. I was like, okay, I like I need to go home. I'm tired. I can't do it anymore. He came to get me, and we were driving back home to New Orleans, and I actually um, was checking my email, and they had an email from the casting agent who happens to be Lee's sister, and they were saying that there was an audition in Los Angeles that he was interested in me um, like auditioning for. Now, like at the time, I was so tired. I was just, like I just finished the whole housewife thing, and I just really needed to get home and just kind of take a moment to myself. So unfortunately, I was like, I'm not able to make it. Wait, hold on, wait, I think I just processed this. You said he <laughs> called you said, I can't make it. You're like, I'm sorry, I, I <laughs> no, just can't. I can't Janet, Janet, I, I was so overwhelmed. And I know it seems crazy, but it was the, I'm like, it was the honest to God truth. I couldn't do it. Like, I physically couldn't, like, go to Los Angeles in a day or two. Mm. So two or three days later, the person reached out again, and they actually asked for my phone number. And when I gave him my phone number, like, it was just a random call one day, and it happened to be Lee. And he honestly laughed as well. Like, you know, so I invited you to an audition and you couldn't make that it. That only made him like you more, though. He was. So- I think that it did. I honestly think that it did. He was like, He's like she is not he thirsty. Just, He's like, wait, I yeah, don't want her. At all. At all. And I explained to him how tired I was and what I had been through. And he said that we'll figure something out. They had a private audition for me in New Orleans. And that was the day that I auditioned for Cotton in New Orleans. Wow. And they started flying me to Los Angeles. Now, that auditioning process, and that's the thing, though I may have been favored, I still had to go through the full process. And I flew to Los Angeles, I believe it was like three times in two weeks once. Wow. So I always say, like, when I go to, uh, uh, like into the makeup trailer at Star, here you see all these headshots of all these people. It's Lenny Kravis and Tyrese and Naomi and the girls even, and then you get to my picture and it's a selfie. Mm. And I just say that to say that that was not my realm. Like, you know, I didn't even have a headshot. I I didn't think that I was going to be an actress, and that's what makes it so amazing. Sometimes I look at my life and I'm shocked as, uh, like, as to how did you even do this, you know? Mm. It's such a blessing. It's so inspiring to think about that image. I'm thinking of the image of you in the makeup trailer, looking at these professional headshots that are that are well lit, and yours is just is a just selfie. your own gaze, right? It's like yeah. your own control. Like you're you created yourself, you created every opportunity that you have, and now you've stepped fully into the light on this show. And your character, Cotton, she experiences a lot of a lot of trauma, violence, and harassment coming out to unsupportive friends and her family. Her mom, who actually had some dark past stuff as well, is struggling with her due to her religion, you know, suicidal thoughts, drug addiction. You know, the show is a soapy hot mess, which I love. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but what was it like for you as an actress to embody this, this role? Well, I was vulnerable, to be honest. Some of Cotton's 
pain and her trials and tribulations and things that she went through, you know, I may have gone through things like that. I'm not identical, but at the same time, there were still things that I could relate to. So though I was playing a character, it still was slightly personal to me. And that's what I think was the biggest thing that I had to realize I had to separate um, the two. I just had to kind of dial myself back. And that's what Lee constantly asks for. It's so funny. I would come out the makeup trailer sometimes and Lee would be like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I saw that. I saw that one video. I think um, your co-star Quincy put it up and it's, you know, just from the makeup trailer and you're over there putting on your highlight. (laughs) I would do it myself so fast because I'm just... I don't know. Like, I find passion in it, but at the same time, I think it's trust issues. I feel like I can trust myself. Mm. Like, you know, I'm not going to let myself down. I know where this highlight is supposed to go. So, <laughs> but then when Lee comes in, right, Lee comes in and says, he's, he sees you come out of the trailer. He says, no, this is too much because this is too much yeah. for Cotton. How do you and yeah. your mind intellectually, as an artist, make that distinction between Amaya and Cotton and be like, OK, well, I have to take this down a dial or two? That is what was difficult in a sense, because, of course, I want Cotton to be the best. So it's almost me having the tools and the knowledge to polish Cotton off. But it's just not Cotton's time. Lee always would say his favorite thing to say is like easy, uh, careful. And then he always (laughs) says that Cotton needs room to grow. I think it worked out. Like, I think I was able to separate the two. I think I was able to tell her story and not let it personally affect me because I I, like I think that that's what it is at the end of the day like I'm a storyteller and I had to realize that that the story that I'm telling is not my own when I hear you talking about the stripping away of the glam I think about the the power of vulnerability Mm -hmm. and I also think about a mantra that I know that that um, you've talked about you know your love of RuPaul and RuPaul always says that you're born naked and the rest is drag yes Yes, yes, yes. How has that philosophy influenced and, and shaped your identity, specifically as a as a public figure who really built her prominence off of an image? It got to the point, like I said, that I was so used to all the glam and all the extra, I forgot to love myself without it. Uh, like, I honestly forgot mm. how how refreshing it was to be fresh-faced or how good it feels to scratch your scalp. You know what I mean? Mm. It was, I got caught up in the the hype, the glamour. I was lost in it. And for Lee to do that, I'm telling you, girl, it. I was almost going to walk away from the opportunity. Mm. Like, that's how caught up in the glamour I was. I didn't feel like I wanted to strip it all away and to be brought back to realize that me in my natural form, whether I have on acrylic nails or eyelashes or weave, I'm still beautiful. Now, when I get glammed up, it's not because I feel dependent to do so. Mm-hmm. It's because I want to. And so thinking about the you know scarcity of images that we do have, mm-hmm. you know, you're only the second black trans woman to have a re- recurring, not even a recurring, but a, a starring role on a show. Yeah. For you, are you aware of the scrutiny that your performance takes because of the duty of representation? Like I am. I'm like, I'm aware of it. But at the same time, my first priority is to live my life and to find my happiness and to provide for myself and my family, being honest. I mean, I would love 
to be a role model or I would love to inspire others or if my story inspires people, I think that that's amazing and that's so great and I'm so flattered. But at the same time, I mean, I just deal with things just like everybody else. I'm human and I'm living life. I'm making mistakes. I'm finding myself. And what I always tell people is that, I mean, I may not lead you, but what what we can do is do it together because I'm figuring it out myself. Mm. You know, I completely get that. Regardless of whether you see yourself as a role model, whether you inspire people, you do do those things, Mm -hmm. right? It's just like the point of being one of the first and the only in that space. You have to, you often have to carry that around, even though you're just trying to live your life. Just like what you said with my social media platform and everything coming from an early age, like it wasn't like I sat down with this kind of world domination plan of how I was going to take over the internet or like change the game with a selfie. I was just like legit living life. And people just begin to notice and it began to garner attention in YouTube videos from ballroom. Like I was walking balls for the money. Like you understand what I mean? Like I was young and displaced from my hometown. Here I was trying to survive. So that was my motive for walking balls. Within that and it being filmed and it being placed on YouTube, it just happened. And I say all of that to say that it's like, sometimes you don't even realize like just how big what you're doing is, how, like I had no idea that me walking those balls that I would be sitting here now on a primetime television show. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I had no idea that my transition was going to be front and center. I think what's crazy is that like, uh, like it was an interview Um, that I did when I was 17 years old and they asked me what I wanted and I said that I just wanted to blend in. You know what I mean? Stealth, um, so to speak, and just blend in and be normal and now I'm the polar opposite from that because again, I feel like I am, like you said, um, one of the few who happen to be out there and I feel like it's almost my duty. I feel like it's a duty now to make a difference or to inspire others since I am being watched like that. Does that make sense? Completely makes sense. You're using your visibility to to help, you know, the quote unquote, the cause, the community. Yeah. And one of the things that I so admire and just really fell in love with you, like before I've always loved you, just period, from being a girl, period. Um, but then also being a black girl and being a black trans girl. Like there's just so many levels to my love for you. Oh, but it was really watching you. watching you re- grapple with the recent loss and death of your dear sister and friend, China Gibson. Oh, my goodness. Watching you grapple with that grief publicly, I I just don't know what I would do if I was to lose a sister like that. And to see you wield and use this moment to talk about the statistics that face our community, the violence, the harassment, all of the things. Because so often when we lose these women, you know, China was fatally shot um, while being back home in New Orleans. Um, She became the fifth trans woman to be murdered in 2017 alone, what happens is that they end up just becoming a hashtag, right? Or an image that we think about or that we hold up at a vigil. And you knew her. Can you tell us about her, how you met, and what you love most about her? Girl, it took me so fast. I'm telling you, like, I had, I just, my eyes just got watery as, as you said that. And I just started to think about what my sister went through and 
it breaks my heart so bad, girl. Like, I'm just trying mm-hmm. to hold on one moment. I'm just trying to compose myself. Take your time. No, I'm okay. And I'm here. And she's in a better place. Um, China was my sister. We met. We all grew up together. I don't know if you're familiar with my cousin, Jolie, but Jolie, China, and I, we all grew up in New Orleans. We were, like, years apart in age. I'm talking about from a very young age, like 13. I'm like, probably, like, 13, 14. And the thing is... They went to school together, but we all hung in the same circles of, um, like, of course, you know how gay scenes are. They're small, and especially in certain cities, they're even smaller. In New Orleans, um, the black gay scene, like, you know everyone. We grew up together. We, um, girl, it's just, I cannot even believe it. I cannot even believe it. Okay. We decided to transition together. Um, Not at the same exact time, but it was just like, you know, when your sister is going through the feelings that you're going through, we did drag shows together. I mean, like, that was um, my sister. That is my sister. And I think the scariest part about it is that, because I'm from New Orleans, so when I'm home, I'm so carefree. Mm. You know what I mean? It's no security and it's not the extraness. It's just me being out and having a great time. There was a time, if you asked me where I was going to live permanently, um, I would say New Orleans. Mm. There's no better place than it. I'm just in love with the city and everything about it. But I say all of that to say that now I'm scared in my own city. I went home for my sister's services and I felt uneasy. Mm. China, uh, like out the three of us, she had a, like a huge family and she was very like she was very popular in New Orleans. China was very loved. And I say all of that to say, sadly, what I realized is is that if my sister could be murdered, shot 10 times in New Orleans, that I could, mm. you know, and that's a very um, tough, hard pill to swallow. You know, I just never um, like I was in Dominican Republic on vacation when I got the phone call. And I still, like, I still remember to this day, like, I just, that's so, that's so horrible. That's so horrible. I mean, they took my sister, they took my peace of mind. My hometown doesn't even feel the same anymore. And though China was loved and her name was spoken and uh, like it was a topic, but what, I mean, how many of our sisters have we lost? How many times do they talk about it or how many times is it uh, like a big deal? And that's what I uh, like admire so much about you, side note, because I love how you speak for the community and you fight for our community. And any time it's something, I always see you like uplifting. You say the girls' names and you speak the girls' names and you get the, uh, like you get the story out. And that's exactly what we need. But even in this instance, though China was loved, I still feel like it wasn't talked about enough. It's never talked about enough. Yeah. You know, I think about, you know, last year alone was like the deadliest year on record for, yeah. in America at least, with 27 murders of trans women of color. And that's only murders that are documented, right? And killings that are documented. Because most often we're not even counted, right? Misgendered once we die, mm-hmm. you know, families being able to kind of strip away identities, you know, families that weren't necessarily um, accepting of our lives and identities. I'm always trying to push, you know, to talk about this. But at the same time, I'm also very conscious and sensitive to the fact that, 
constantly hearing about this too, only death, only trauma, only violence, what effect that has on the girls who are living and struggling, right? Yeah. Like, it breaks my heart to hear that your your home, you know, a place that you consider home, which is something that's so hard for anyone to find, has shifted for you because of this incident. Yeah. I don't feel safe there. There were videos, I don't know if you saw them, of men actually, like it was almost like they were hunting trans, mm. like on a hunt in New Orleans for trans women. I mean, how how crazy is that? Like how, how how crazy is that? And I think what breaks my heart now, uh, like even more so, um, China was preparing for her SRS. Mm. Her surgery was on uh, was going to be on April twenty fifth. They took this girl's life, and her life hadn't even begun yet. Like you know what mm. I mean? She was just about to follow her dreams. Like Jolie and I were going with her, and it was just I. That's so terrible that's so terrible to know that my sister was shot 10 times and laid face down uh like in between two cars that that's so terrible to me i mean like and i only said that so people could really understand that my sister was shot 10 times for no reason and laid face down in between two cars in a parking lot and I mean, did we march or did people talk about it or was it a big deal? I don't, I feel like that it could have been discussed more. And China actually was well-loved, so they discussed it more than the usual. Mm. We deserve more than that, girl. We do. We deserve much more than that. We deserve justice just like anyone else. What's your vision for girls growing up? What's your vision for their future, what kind of futures do you want to see them be able to live? I mean, I want to see them be happy and I want to see them be able to live their lives and to not be scared. Janet, I'm scared sometimes when I'm out, you know, and I happen to be one of the uh, the lucky ones, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, so I could only imagine how some of my sisters feel how some trans women feel, how how young trans youth feels growing up. Like, how do you how do you deal with that, knowing that, like, at any moment or or at any time, someone who has hate in their heart for no reason can, you know what I mean, like, take my life or end my life or I'm not worth it? Like, I would hope for their safety. I think that that's what I would hope for first. And then from there, I would hope for their happiness or whatever happiness they can find. Well, I believe that one of those moments and semblance of happiness is seeing you live your dreams out loud, seeing you shine on star. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. I just want, I mean, like, I just want us, or I'm fighting. I mean, of course, I can't do it alone, but I think that my fight is for respect. I just want, like, I want nothing more than normal, basic human rights. And I think that that's what's frustrating, because why why are we begging for basic human rights? Mm-hmm. We aren't asking for extra, girl. I know. I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, we just. I'm, we, like, I'm like, can we talk about hair again? Because <laughs> okay, I'm just teasing. Okay. No, it's okay. I am. I'm really. I'm so happy that we had the moment 
to chop it up, though, this was long overdue. I feel like it's so much more to talk about. Of course, some personal conversations as well. But I just love your vibe. Thank you so much. I, I'm so glad we were able to do this. I'm so grateful for you for for being on my podcast. It's no, no problem. And I also want to take a moment to say congrats on everything. Congratulations on your new book. Oh. Girl, the wedding, I mean, it's so much. Like, you know, we haven't spoken before, <laughs> but congrats on all that you do as well. Like, I, I'm so proud of you and you also inspire me. It's just great to see that we don't have to be boxed into what they feel like we should be like, to see um, successful, black trans women and I think that that's just a topic that I want to touch basis on quickly girl we're black trans and women mm. like you understand what I mean mm -hmm. that's three different battles that I don't think that people even realize and I wish that we got the support across the board like we give support mm. like you know what mm -hmm. I mean we're there at a black lives matter march we're there at a women's march but who's going to stand for us at a trans march? Mm. Who's going to stand and fight for our injustices and things like that? Like, that's just what I really want to know. That's what I'm curious to see, because I think that we have so much weight on our backs and we don't even realize that we're fighting three different battles. Well, they don't realize it. Of course we do. What's so ironic to me about that, you know, the sense of we talk about intersectional feminism and all these things is, you know, the fact that we're black, we're trans and we're women. In my theory or my estimation, we should have more people showing up for us, right? But we instead should. what happens is that because we carry these multiple identities within our bodies, we end up falling in between the cracks of these coalitions and these movements, right? And so like that's, for me, that's like the ultimate injustice um, because it makes yeah. us, it makes all the girls that much more vulnerable because not enough people are showing up and speaking out and rallying and checking and challenging systems of oppression that we fall into. And so I just hope that, you know, what we can do, at least what we can control, is our support of one another. Um, and so I am so grateful for you, for your kind words about my work. And I want you to know that I am only rooting for you. I only want the greatest things in the world for you and for all the girls. Thank you so much, Janet. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed our show, please subscribe to it and rate it on Apple Podcast. It really helps us elevate the show and gets more people listening to us and obviously ranking us because we want to be your fave. So go do it. Now here's Lena Dunham, my executive producer, to give you a little hint about next week's guest. Fucking so just like overexposed, exhausting, bitchy, self-satisfied, smug. I'm not listening. That's next week on Never Before. Never Before is a product of Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. It was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Ricky Novetsky, Josh Gwynn, Liz Watson, and Barry Finkel. Our executive producer is Lena Dunham. Special thanks to Max Linsky and Ben Cooley. Our music is by Hansdell Sue. Thanks so much for listening. We're back next week.